It's Friday, February 2nd, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. All dogs go to heaven, the New York Times reports, but a bulldog might find itself headed there years before a border terrier. And reporting on the same study about snout size and dog longevity, The Guardian says every dog has its day, but some clock up more years than others. So the gist will begin its report on this report with a cutesy dog aphorism. Let's see. Oh, okay. Bow, wow, wow, yippee-yay, yippee-yaw, doggy dog's in the motherfucking house, but he would be in the motherfucking house even longer if he had a pointy snout and if he were a she. I'll quote The Guardian now. Whilst previous research has identified sex, face shape, and body size as contributing factors in canine longevity, no one has investigated the interaction between the three or explored the potential link between evolutionary history and lifespan, said Dr. Kristen McMillan, the first author of the research from the charity Dogs Trust. That sounds like an endorsement at the end of a commercial. We're the charity Dogs Trust. Four out of five Border Collies surveyed gave us three paws up. No, that's the name of the charity. It's called Dogs Trust. It's an English charity, and they found that the smooshy-faced dogs don't live as long as the pointy-snouted dogs. Not much dog do about it. Once the dog is born into a litter and spends time on this earth, also it's probably good that a dog cannot achieve consciousness of his own or her own demise. Her own demise would according to these statistics, take a bit longer than his own demise. I had a smushy-faced dog, and I always knew this, or knew that all descendants of the Mastiff, which is, I think, the big smushy-faced breed, they just don't live as long. I think it has to do with breath. But what I wonder is, Dogs Trust, a fine, fine charity, but how much research is not being done on the non cutesy wootsy animals, or even on the pretty good-looking animals, but just not their adorable faces. What if the body parts of other beasts correlated to longevity? Wouldn't we want to know that? I think we would. But the researchers aren't going in there and finding if long life correlates to the circumference of a cow's anus. And I think... This needs to be investigated. The cow's anus and longevity. Moosecock size. You thought I was going to say moosecock. I'm not. It's more of a cliche. But I'm thinking of uh, elbow length, antler length, but anus circumference on pigs, hogs, all manner of farm animals. Where is the funding for that, I ask? You know, up here in the top of the show, it can't all be gold. And I'm going to say retroactively, that was gold. It just wasn't a big bar of gold, a flex of gold, nuggets of gold. I just don't want to take up too much of your time. Sometimes I talk about the death penalty. Sometimes I get into things for hours on end, it would seem. I want to get right to the interview and get right to the spiel because it is a long one. It is a doozy and it does not in any way, you will be happy to know, touch upon the subject of elk anuses. On the show today, credibility, The New Yorker, and Portland, Oregon overdose deaths. But first, John Ellis is a former Fox News decision desk leader. In other words, he was central 
to the election coverage of Fox News. Joe Klein is a longtime political analyst who was once known or not known as anonymous. He has a substack now at the Sanity Clause, does Klein. Ellis is also out there on Substack telling you all the important news you should know. But when they come together in a podcast called Night Owls, I pay particular attention. It is a joining of the center right and center left, let's say. Maybe Klein would call himself the center center. Maybe Ellis would insist that he defies description. But I think it's a usually good talk and I was happy to intermediate this one. Ellis and Klein up next. Two of the keenest, sharpest, and I think most storied journalists covering this elections and just politics in general are John Ellis and Joe Klein. Joe has a substack called Sanity Clause. John has a couple of substacks, one called News Items, one called Political Items. You might know their historic work in journalism. And they also have this great podcast associated with the substacks called Night Owls that I've been listening to. And they join me now. Gentlemen, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So what's the, if you're pitching uh, the show to investors, what's the differentiation? What's the problem that your particular product is solving? Joe, you could go first. The lack of sanity in American politics uh, right now um, on both sides. Uh, the fact that uh, we have two of the most un unpopular candidates uh, for president uh, that we've ever had but also the, the fact that interest groups in both parties have led those parties off the rails, in my opinion. Um, populist, uh, white supremacists to a certain extent in the Republican Party, and uh, identity politics extremists in the, uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, and so um, my job is to call them out when I can, in whatever small way I can. Do you think those are equivalent in terms of uh, how each how each interest group warps the party? Uh, are they equivalent in terms of how concerned voters should be uh, about them? Are they equivalent in how much that they hurt each party in terms of appealing to Americans? Well, I think that uh, the Republicans have been taken over by, uh, you know, right wing populists. Uh, Democrats, it's a more complicated situation. It's a, uh, uh, the Democrats are a coalition, but there is one part of that coalition, the academic left uh, and the identity activists uh, that say and do so many stupid things that it redounds to the benefit of the Republican Party and makes it more difficult for uh, Democrats to, uh, uh, to beat someone like Donald Trump, who should not ever, should have never been president of the United States. I've known the guy for 40 years. Um, he is, you know, not a man of substance. He is a man of anger. John, you could go to my original question. What's your value proposition or just take what we were talking about, which is uh, how much does each deformity within the party, how much should we be concerned about each comparatively? The value proposition of news items is that we try to identify the news that is most important, uh, most interesting, or both. Uh, and the, 
what we hope to do is to read all the stuff and bring to your attention the most important and interesting stuff uh, that you don't have time to read or that you can't find by yourself, that there's so much information that you just can't, you know, aggregate it all. So that's the value proposition is aggregation. Um, on the political side, it's to identify stories and data and polling that also you might not otherwise uh, be aware of. And then commentary by myself and Mary Williams Walsh. And uh, we have just started an op-ed feature. Um, so we're hoping that Joe will be one of the contributors. <laughs> Do you think the Republicans are as deranged as the Democrats are comparatively, John? Uh, I think the, the Republicans are... Uh, I think of I don't think of Trump as a candidate. I think of Trump as a movement, and uh, the movement is based. The base of the movement is non-college educated, ex-urban, and rural. And that's the, the. I mean, the key thing about that constituency is they don't have any money, and therefore they don't have any power in Washington. And they, you know, they've been uh, victimized, if you will, by globalization. They fought wars that they had no uh, say in. Uh, you could go on and on and on. What they've discovered is that they have one uh, significant piece of power, which is the vote. And they've come together uh, to create this thing called Trump. Uh, but I think the, the challenge for American politics is to figure out how to uh, stitch that constituency back into some kind of uh, centrist coalition. Um, the Democratic Party, I don't know as well. Uh, you know, I know what I read, uh, but Joe is... You've Joe, heard about them. Well, no, but I'm not uh, as fluent as, uh, as Joe is. So I, I really depend on Joe for insight into what's going on there. Well, he, my take, and you know, this will probably be more reflective of Joe's take on things, is that the Democrats have these very irksome tendencies and maybe some policy positions. They do seem to actually um, turn off voters when they prattle on about uh, identity politics, if you want to call it that, especially using phrases that no one really understands. And if I had to choose, I would, you know, make land acknowledgements at best optional, for instance. So yeah, don't love that. When it comes to Republicans, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about what I think the rational uh, perception of each party should be. Republicans, on the other hand, under uh, the Trumpist uh, ascendancy, are at such a shockingly dangerous place. So we are talking about several standard deviations off from the norm. It's like comparing a mm, paper cut to an amputation. I don't know, fair or overstated, do you think, Joe? I, I think that's fair. I'm reading Liz Cheney's book right now, and it is just shocking, uh, the amorality of so much of the Republican leadership. I mean, this is a guy, Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the United States government after the election of 2020. Um, and I don't mean by incurred, by cheerleading the protesters on January 6th. I mean the full month before that, when he conspired um, 
to set up a fake elector scheme uh, to steal the legitimate votes of the American people. Uh, and I want to interrupt is, you. You're very good. You're very good on this because it wasn't the words on January 6th, which were bad. It was the fake elector scheme, which was plotted and which was planned and which he put a lot of time. And you can't argue that he had a, that he had all the intention, if we're talking about mens rea, of doing it. And sometimes those two things get conflated. Oh, he said these things on January 6th. And he also had this intricate, though, insane scheme. You are very good at pointing out the scheme is so much worse than the uh, words on January 6th. Well, the key thing here is that Jack Smith knows that, too. And he is prosecuting Trump for the fake elector scheme, not for the events of January 6th. Uh, but still, I mean, the number of people uh, in the Republican Party now who are willing to go along uh, with Trump, who remains an election denier to this day. I think it, uh, it, it's something unlike anything we've seen in American history. I'll say this. I, I wrote a column after January 6th in which I, I made, tried to make the case that, uh, that the extremists, the people who tried to, the people who stormed the Capitol won. Uh, they were not, uh, you know, it, the the narrative that of how close we came and all that stuff. The outcome of January sixth was that Republicans who voted to impeach uh, Trump were either censured by their party uh, or defeated in primaries the next, uh, you know, two years later. Um, and that that uh, I don't, you know, extremism. Uh, has flourished in the last three and a half years or three years. Um, and that, I mean, I think that's the, the most astonishing. There are two things that are astonishing. One, that the extremists won on January 6th. I don't think there's any doubt about that, about what happened thereafter. And the second is what's happening right now, which is the Supreme Court said to the state of Texas, you cannot uh, interfere with the federal government. And now we have, what, 20 Republican governors standing with, quote unquote, standing with Governor Abbott in in direct violation of a Supreme Court decision. I, it, it astonishes me. It really does. Um, it's and made this a is, lot easier by the by the utter inaction of the Democratic Party and President Biden when it comes to immigration and the border. Right. I'm sorry for interrupting. John. No, that exactly. I mean, but uh, but it, it's uh, I mean it's a little more complicated than than I'm than I'm saying here. But uh, but this this Supreme Court denial, if you will, uh, that Governor Abbott is leading. I mean, on one level, obviously, he's running for vice president, so there's that going on. But on a second level, it's it's astonishing that, A, it's not a bigger news story, number one, and number two, uh, yeah. that people in the Republican Party are going along with it. I mean, it's just absolutely unacceptable. So. So, John, you spent many years at the Fox uh, election desk. You understand many things about the minds of our voters. I sometimes think that I am not correctly perceiving the mood of the country or where we should be because, like I said, I think what Trump stands for is so outrageous. And I think what Joe Biden stands for is so irksome. Oh, sorry, not so. Is, irksome is, was a know, good word. Perhaps <laughs> irksome or annoying at worst. Yeah, it's vexatious, let's say. Right. So 
I am not properly, and, and it befuddles me that more people don't see it this way. I understand there are many people who disagree with my take on things, and I understand that not all Republicans are in the uh, Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney mold. But still, I don't. I sometimes don't even know how to counter uh, what I see as delusion on the part of many Americans. Um, do you think this in some ways plays into the Republican game plan here, that the outrageousness is just stymieing Democrats and they don't even know how to counter-program it? Well, I think part of the problem is that a great many Americans have lost track of the difference between reality and reality TV. Uh, and, um, and Donald Trump is a form of reality TV. And uh, he's a form of entertainment. And there are an awful lot of people who have been uh, in the country. I spent years taking road trips across the country, talking to folks out there um, of all political stripes. But one thing that all of them had in common uh, from, you know, poor blacks to, uh, you know, Insur white insurance salesmen in Keokuk, Iowa, uh, is that they all felt, as John said before, left out. Uh, and they were all very happy uh, and very satisfied when someone, you know, tossed, um, tossed a rock or a boulder at, at, at the big uh, elite eastern uh, castle and maybe shattered it a little bit. You know, we always talk about shattering the glass ceiling, but, uh, you know, the glass edifice of, uh, of liberal elitism uh, has, has really ruled the country without, uh, quietly, uh, for decades now. And I think that this is a, a reaction, uh, a sad reaction uh, to that. Yes. And I understand that someone with a populist bent and someone who doesn't say the politically correct thing and someone who reads to the electorate is a little rough around the edges and maybe talks about immigration and actually correctly identifies that as an issue that other more genteel candidates aren't talking about, that person would have such great advantages. Yet it's such a uh, further, it's, uh, what, what is the phrase? Whatever the phrase is, it is so much worse than all of that, which I understand, to actually have had this fake elector scheme and to have the January 6th scheme. And I am a little shocked. I understand that many Americans are living in reality TV, but I am a little shocked that it just didn't do to the regular Republican voter what it did to like the eight Republican senators who voted to impeach. It just radicalized them and said, this isn't about political incorrectness. This is literally about, you know, what Joe Biden says that the Democracy's on the ballot. Sorry, it's a cliche, but it seems more true than not. And it's about, you know, an actual insurrection that could have happened. Uh, it's It flummoxes me that more people, even in the Republican Party, aren't seeing that. I would say, I mean, when people ask me what I think about the 2024 election, I, I always say I think it's going to be close uh, because yeah. <laughs> because that way you avoid what you really think and uh, you don't you don't ruin the dinner party. But uh, the thing that scares me the most is uh, it, it it's entirely I, I, I I'm haunted by this idea that actually half of the people in the country have sort of given up on the idea of America and. If that's true, uh, then the country is in 
just horrific trouble. Uh, and I don't, I mean, I don't, I look at all of these poll data and something is seriously wrong. Brett's, uh, what's his name? Brett Stevens. Is that right? The columnist mm-hmm. for the globe yes. or the times had a good Time, piece, huh? right. had a good piece about, uh, the problem is that everything is broken, broken families, broken schools, broken this, broken that. Um, I think that that's I think that's really true, and I I am really scared that if 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 fifty percent of the people in the country or fifty percent of the voters in the country have you know have sort of given up on the American idea, then that that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Machiavelli once said that Ozio is the greatest enemy of a republic. Uh, what is Ozio? Ozio is indolence. Uh, Machiavelli was worried about what happened to a republic, in our case, a democratic uh, republic, um, when when it wasn't at war, when it didn't have to be disciplined. And we have had 75 years of peace and prosperity. There have been some dips and a couple of pretty awful wars. But when you look at human history, Americans have gotten soft and they just don't understand when things don't go entirely their way all the time. Uh, And I think that uh, that kind of laxness, that kind of lassitude has led to a moment where democracy just doesn't seem that important to an awful lot of people, which was something I never thought would happen, is utterly shocking. But I had, you know, I had lunch with a couple of uh, cousins who were Trumpers, and they were far more concerned about inflation and immigration than they were about democracy. Joe Klein's Substack is Sanity Clause. John Ellis's Substack uh, is news items. Also, he does political items. And they joined together to do the Night Owls podcast on Substack. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And now the spiel. This one's going to be a press critique of a particular story. It's going to wind up as a contemplation. Wait, no, definitely not. I hate a contemplation. Some rules, rules of thumb for me, maybe that will apply to you, about the question, how does media gain or lose credibility? So the story in question is about an issue. Oregon's Measure 110, the state's initiative to essentially decriminalize drug use. Small amounts of meth or opioids or other drugs would be punished with a $100 ticket, a ticket that was easily waived. When the referendum passed with 60% of the public in support, it was hailed as the boldest, most progressive means of discarding the failed punitive drug policies of the past. It was embracing something that was humane, but also evidence-based. It's what government should be doing. It would save lives. Opioid use was spiking. Fentanyl was present in so many of the drugs, as was the case throughout the country. Oregonians were dying. The year passed, overdose deaths in Oregon had gone from 280 to 472. Then... A year after it passed, 
Oregon saw the sharpest increase in overdose deaths from synthetic opioids in the U.S. after the legislation took effect. CBS News's Adam Yamaguchi reporting on the 2021 unintentional opioid overdose death toll, which was 738. Was that a post-pandemic blip? It was not, because the 2022 unintentional opioid overdeath toll was 956. By 2023, Pending the full statistics, the Oregonian newspaper predicts 1,250 overdose deaths. So, of course, Oregonians are fed up. They're angry and they're anguished, I would say. And not just over the body count, but the scenes of public drug use playing out, drug users overtaking public spaces, the perception and the statistical-based evidence for increased lawlessness. A pullback on this policy was inevitable. The bipartisan group, co-chaired by Senator Kate Lieber, is now revealing a controversial proposal that would end parts of Measure 110 and recriminalize possession of illegal drugs like fentanyl. Portland police says the number of suspected overdose deaths they've responded to this year is already in the triple digits. The headline among their package of ideas is to recriminalize possession of drugs like meth and fentanyl. I followed this issue pretty closely. I wasn't against the initiative, but I was intensely curious about the experiment. It was probably a little suspicious. And as I look at the death toll, I think to myself, numbers don't lie. Plus, I monitor accounts out of Oregon, segments I hear on Oregon public broadcasting, which I check in on. I pay attention to the results of local city council races. It's pretty interesting politics out there. And it all added up and led me to believe It just didn't work. The New York Times dedicated considerable resources to the shocking documentation of the extent that the measure didn't work. Quote, at four in the afternoon, the streets can feel like dealer central. One local shop owner told the Times at least 20 to 30 people in ski masks, hoodies and backpacks, usually on bikes and scooters. There's no point calling the cops. Then they interviewed a cop. He had come downtown and now he's addicted to fentanyl, the cop said about a citizen. So I narcanned him, and he came back twice now, I think. A big part of his job is writing Measure 110 tickets. Quote, it's like, hey, you can't smoke meth or fentanyl on the sidewalk or on the playground. And the pushback we get, people can be really aggressive. They think they're in the right because they think drugs are legal. I say beer is legal, but you still can't drink beer in public. So we cite them and give them the drug screening card. Then they'll say they don't want the treatment. Or they'll tell us, okay, I'll call the number. And two hours later, we run into them again. They're smoking or even overdosing. Here's another quote from a homeless man living under a bridge. Portland is a homeless drug addict's slice of paradise. Those are the quotes. The pictures were more disturbing. The Times ran many stories about Portland, Measure 110, the whole impact on Oregon, the backlash. There was, as far as I could see, no data point, no words, no pictures, no numbers, no personal anecdotes from friends of mine who I talked to that led me to believe that it was anything less than a failure. And maybe this next part is inflected by my prior skepticism. I would say anything less than a disaster. Then the New Yorker ran a piece titled, A Drug Decriminalization Fight Erupts in Oregon. An ambitious law sets forth a more humane way to address addiction. Then came the backlash. 
the piece was published. It says online January 24th, I think it was in the magazine marked January 16th. And the backlash they speak of wasn't credited to the effects, the ill effects of the law. The backlash was painted as a function mostly of perception. People still being too set in their ways, not embracing enough of change and not giving change enough of a chance to take hold. The piece centered around a punk rock type figure who handed out clean needles and naloxaprone via a van called the Stabbin' Wagon. Oregon's efforts were painted as not nearly aggressive enough and contrasted at one point with Vancouver's supposedly more effective programs described as, quote, backed by extensive research, but just too radical for just about anywhere in the U.S. Unremarked upon were the precise figures of drug deaths in Vancouver and the province Vancouver is in. Earlier this week, those totals were released and reported by the CBC. British Columbia has set a grim new record this year for toxic drug deaths. According to the BC coroner's service, there were 2,511 suspected unregulated drug deaths in 2023, a stark difference from a decade before when 334 unregulated drug deaths were recorded. British Columbia has 5 million residents, Oregon four and a quarter million. British Columbia has more than twice as many overdose deaths as Oregon. I don't know if the Oregon population could possibly weather the more radical, quote, backed by extensive research approach of Vancouver. The New Yorker piece fails to truly grapple with just how poorly Measure 110 is working, judging by the rubric of keeping people alive. There is no paragraph grappling with the large uptick. I say grappling. There is no paragraph weighing the large uptick in deaths before the law passed versus after. The 2022 numbers were reported, but not the fact that every month of 2023 has been worse than 2022. There was no attempt to put the body count in perspective. They could have said, if they wanted to emphasize this point, the fact that more Oregonians died from overdosing last year than died fighting in all the years of the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Vietnam combined. What the piece says is, in fact, that a recent study by NYU found, quote, no evidence of association between decriminalization and fatal overdose rates in Oregon and Washington. The drugs in circulation, the piece goes on to say, were unusually lethal, and given that being arrested can actually increase the risk of overdose, the authors wrote, Measure 110 might help to alleviate the problem. All right. However, there was no mention of another study in the Journal of Health Economics that found that in the months after Oregon decriminalized possession, unintentional drug overdoses were 23% higher than they would have been without the legislation. The author of the NYU report, by the way, says that deaths were up in Oregon and Washington. You can't deny that, but he notes that they were up everywhere in the West. He cited Nebraska, Nevada, and Idaho. But his research stopped in March of 2022. So I looked up the death overdose data collected by the CDC since then. I wish I could show you the charts. The visual tells much more of the picture than my words will. But it goes like this. Nevada, overdose deaths are up. Nebraska, they're down. Idaho, they are down ever so slightly, 376 to 352. Oregon, it looks like Microsoft stock price up, up, up. The 12-month period ending March 2022, 1,256 deaths. But if he kept tracking it, 
the 12-month period for the most recent month tracked, 1,612 deaths. So I had to do that research on my own. It wasn't in the New Yorker piece. What the New Yorker piece was telling me was something that I had no reason to believe other than the fact that it was printed in the New Yorker. So that's the general press criticism part of what I'm talking about. But here's the more interesting, more personal angle. The writer of the piece is E. Tammy Kim. In addition to The New Yorker, Kim was on staff with the New York Times Opinion Desk, has written for The Nation, Al Jazeera America, before pursuing a career in journalism. Miss Kim was an attorney for the Urban Justice Center, whose tagline splashed on their homepage is fueling social change. Right below that, it says, we advocate for a just, fair, and decent society and mentor the next generation of social justice leaders. Fine, you get a sense of where E. Tammy Kim is coming from. But I didn't need a sense. I realized I already had an earful. My incredulity rising as I read the article, I check the byline, it's E. Tammy Kim, and I say, wait, I know her. I listen to her almost every week. She's the co-host of this great podcast called Time to Say Goodbye. The other host, the main host, I'd say, he's still there, she left, is this brilliant guy named Jay Caspian King, who I loved being intellectually challenged by. We don't agree on most things, but he's good at phrasing his arguments. And Kim, she was a good foil for him. She was a good debate partner, a good sounding board, very intelligent. She pushed back here and there, but it was very, very clear where her politics were because she told us. Because I think some of our listeners are actually like younger Asian Americans, maybe people in high school or college who are kind of thinking about what sort of future they want and, you know, who might be getting exposed to left politics, we hope, because that's like our evangelical <laughs> motive in making the show. But, um, she has talked about crediting the tactics of anarchists and all about the protests that she was attending and the idea that all protest is good protest. And that's all fine. And her background as an advocate for the fair, decent, and just society, including the next generation of social justice leaders, not incompatible with journalism. You just need good editors making sure you're doing good journalism. On the podcast, it's more than fine. All that background made for good listening. Plus, Kim, I have to say, she has a clear journalistic streak. Her most frequent contribution on the podcast, where they discuss very thorny issues, was to ask, Hey, I don't know. What do you guys think? But if you told me that Tammy Kim was covering Oregon Measure 110 and overdoses in Oregon, I would say, wow, because if Tammy Kim were to go in and report on this highly touted program, highly touted by the exact kinds of groups who Tammy Kim is affiliated with, and she were to report, this has failed as badly as it seems to have failed and as badly as every other credible reporter is saying that it's failed, I would think that would go very far in defining the issue. But Tammy Kim did not report that. Okay, fine, then I would say. She went to Oregon and really effectively rebutted the voluminous reporting that indicates the program's a tragic failure. But that did not happen either. Kim, who has her priors and biases like we all do, filed a report purporting to upend conventional wisdom, my wisdom at least, I think my well-informed wisdom, but it totally failed to get there. It ignored unignorable conditions. It treated glaring problems as slight concerns to nod at but not to address. It cited what seems to me an extremely unconvincing study. It held up as an example of success, Vancouver, what I think is actually more of an example of a horror show, a cautionary tale. I felt lied to, I felt a little betrayed, and that's what credibility is. 
I don't totally, I don't even mostly fault Kim. Her bosses knew what she was likely to report. They sent her there. And whoever commissioned the report then edited it and fact-checked it through the New Yorker's famous fact-checking regime. Then they ran it. And I think no one involved in the process did enough due diligence or really cared or gave a damn about the end reader, the end reader who they rely on. The New Yorker is, of course, a magazine of opinion and of reporting and of reported opinion and of opinionated reporting. It's considered the best reporting of any magazine in the world by many. This, what I read, is very much not that. And the New Yorker does this a lot. They assigned Andrew Morantz, a fine chronicler of the left from the left, to cover the issue of Democrats and Israel. But Morantz had previously signed an open letter advocating for ceasefire in the war against Hamas. I mean, they disclosed it. They disclosed it 3,500 words into a 3,700-word piece. They clearly, the New Yorker does, I have to conclude, they have disregard or maybe disdain for readers like me. Or they just don't think that my sense of credibility is either accurate or valid. I mean, they have the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism on staff. He doesn't seem to co-sign my sense of credibility either. And like a sucker... I still read The New Yorker. I read it for Patrick Radden Keefe's great piece on a virtuoso screenwriter, or Jennifer Gonnerman on a school shooter, or Adam Gopnik on just about anything. So the effect is The New Yorker, like so many other cultural products, has gone from a source of trust, not blind trust, but a reassuring trust, a place where I can, for a second, rely on them, a place where they have credibility. So it's gone from that to a different place, a more usual place in our media ecosystem. If there's a byline who I doubt will be a fair broker, I'm just going to assume, have to assume from now on that they won't be a fair broker. I'll be skipping more of their pieces. The New Yorker has shown an indifference to my definition of credibility, my sense thereof. The question is, am I just a fool for reading the magazine at all? Or maybe you could argue, this is what I argue to myself, why, how do I benefit by punishing myself by not reading the good pieces out of spite for the poor time-wasting pieces? Yeah, so great. It's another intellectual task that requires strategizing and metacognition in order to appreciate it, or I should say to navigate it. As of now, it's still worth it, but I wouldn't be shocked if it were soon time to say goodbye. All right, that's the show for today and the week. Corey Wara and Joel Patterson, the quaint mallards, produced the gist from the positions of producer and senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Thanks for listening.